This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Classic Christian Thinkers, the new book by author and theologian Kenneth Samples. It highlights the lives of some of Christianity's greatest historical figures. Get your copy today by visiting www.reasons.org slash quick to listen. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. This week on the show, we will be talking about Beth Moore and the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm with Mark Galley, our editor-in-chief. Hello, Morgan. We just went, came back from the South. Yeah, you from Savannah and me from New Orleans, so... There you go. Yeah, and right now we are actually talking to someone who is currently in Birmingham. Who are we speaking with? We're speaking with Sarah Pulliam Bailey. She's a reporter for the Washington Post. She covers how faith intersects with everything, everything, including politics, culture, and education, issues such as same-sex marriage, poverty, abortion, and the environment. Her real claim to fame, however, is the years she worked as a reporter and editor for Christianity Today. And during that stint, she actually stayed in my home when she came. She worked off-site, and she stayed in our upstairs third bedroom. We have a plaque above it now. Sarah Pulliam Bailey. <laughs> slept here. Reporter for the Sarah, Washington Post. That. Slept here. Go You're going to have to come and see it. And then the other thing, I've, I've said this to many people, Sarah, but I, I think I need to say mm-hmm. it to you now how much you annoyed me when you stayed with me. So we'd have dinner after work, and then Sarah and I would go to the living room and whip out our laptops and start working, and... It's eight o'clock and Sarah's still working. So I have to work because I'm one of her bosses, you know, <laughs> then it's nine o'clock. She's still working. I have to, finally, I gave up. I go to bed <laughs> and just say, I just, I'm not a very good journalist, I guess. Wake up the next morning and Sarah's posted a, a news story at 1130 that night. So there you go. That's who we're dealing with here. A fanatical journalist and a very good one. No, at that. I am no longer a workaholic. <laughs> I'm happy to tell you. Oh, well, that is a good thing. Oh, yes. Mark rubbed off on you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So cool. But however, or you are speaking with us from Birmingham, yes. as we mentioned. What's going on there? Yeah, so I'm at the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting. Um, there are about 8,000 people here for the meeting. They're talking about all kinds of things from race to women to sex abuse to missions and evangelism, and I'm just here to kind of be a fly on the wall. Wonderful. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. That I that assume is. you'll be reporting, or you are reporting on it daily, or how's that working? Yes. Yeah, I've been doing uh, pieces, and I'll keep doing a piece here and there about whatever they vote on. Great. All right. Well, let us get into our topic. As Beth Moore walks onto the convention center stage, the crowd erupts into screams and cheers. Several snap pictures with their cameras and cell phones. It's the largest crowd the Springfield, Illinois venue has hosted, topping Elton John's appearance over a decade ago. 
More than 8,000 women from teenagers to senior citizens have traveled from 30 states and shelled out $60 each to watch Moore open her Bible live and in person. Anybody just need a fresh dose of Jesus? Moore yells. The crowd roars back. So began Sarah Pulliam Bailey's cover story for us at CT on Beth Moore in 2010. And actually, you probably realized it was 2010 once I said several snap pictures with their cameras and cell phones. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At that time, already some 666,000 had attended Moore's Living Proof live conferences and millions had read her books. Her popularity as a Bible teacher has only grown since then. As the author of the cover story, Sarah put it, her stories about her big hair and self-tanner keep her audience in stitches, but also reveal her unmistakable rootedness in Southern Baptist culture. But her call to study the Bible seriously, as well as dramatic stories from her own life, sexual abuse as a child, a recent hysterectomy, giving her adopted son back to his birth mother, have earned more a following well beyond Baptist and Southern communities. In recent years, Moore has also begun speaking out on politics, sexual abuse, and misogyny that she's experienced in the church. A recent profile for her in The Atlantic had two headlines, the tiny blonde Bible teacher taking on the evangelical political machine, and Beth Moore, the evangelical superstar taking on Trump. Through her preferred medium of choice, Moore tweeted last month what she called the most disturbing, terrifying thing I'd ever seen. So she said in 2016, she was able to confront for the first time the abuses and misuses of power she had seen and experienced in the Southern Baptist denomination. Moore tweeted that she was especially concerned that, as she put it, the shepherds were, quote, guarding other shepherds instead of guarding the sheep. Moore ended her tweet thread by affirming her desire to continue to serve in the SBC, which she said she had been doing since she was 12, Advocation Bible School. She tweeted, I will serve it, and this is how I am serving it right now. At the beginning of the month, Moore provoked another controversy with some Southern Baptist leaders when discussing how she would be preaching at an upcoming church. Southern Baptists generally frown on women preaching in churches. And this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss how Beth Moore came to hold the platform that she does, when she began to speak out on more controversial topics, and what this means for the communities that she's a part of. All right, so we gave a little bit of a summary of stuff, but there's obviously some stuff that we really want to delve into. And Mark, I thought today for our quick to listen, rather than just pick a particular tweet to react to, let's maybe talk about how you've experienced Beth Moore, especially as she's become a little bit more vocal on politics, sexual abuse, and misogyny in the past couple of years. Yeah. I first became acquainted with her when I discovered that she, her videos were being used at an African-American Bible study that uh, my foster son's future mother-in-law was hosting. Mm. And it was a video series that was uh, being watched by a group of upper-middle-class Episcopalian women Mm. in the western suburbs. And I thought, who is this person that can appeal to both these groups? Mm. I was pretty impressed. She did make allusions early on for many years to her sexual abuse as a young woman But she didn't spend a lot of focus there. So what I'm hearing, okay, if I can play amateur psychologist and therapist, is her coming to grips with this and the internal anger and even rage that has been, in a sense, probably in some sense, fueling her ministry for many years. Uh, And I think that's probably a healthy thing. Uh, She does, you know, from a perspective of a journalist, I think she overplays her hand sometimes. But one can understand if she's been abused and ignored for decades about this thing, why she would be speaking out so forcefully. So I admire her her courage and her willingness to face and do it. So I personally did some Beth Moore Bible studies 
growing up, and I would say she was my first introduction to, I don't know what to call it, like just Texas womanhood. I don't know. I did not grow up with a lot of people who wore that much makeup and did their hair in that particular way. And we'd watch her videos, and I really loved everything that she had to say, even if culturally it didn't always make sense to me. But it's really been fascinating to watch her find her voice. I think one of the ways that has been uniquely fascinating is that most of the people that we look at as like the names or personalities, maybe less so in our movement, but in movements in general, are often like really young people. And it's not always that someone in their 60s is is the one that's captivating everyone, especially in the ways that she's doing it, which is like hanging out on Twitter, um, which, you know, you as someone who doesn't like Twitter. Mark, she's pointing to me, everybody. Yes, <laughs> not Sarah. And rolling her eyebrows. Okay. And looking down on me. That is literally about. not what I'm doing. <laughs> but I'm just saying, Mark, I'm not like saying you're, it you're, isn't you're, you're not holding court on Twitter all no, the time. I'm not. And it's just been interesting to kind of watch her do that and also for her to kind of build a community around this particular. It's not just sex abuse, but it is for a lot of Christians who really don't see themselves as being cheerleaders of Trump, for instance. Um, This is some of the things that she's been vocal about, even if not always naming the president, um, but provided space for those Christians, I think, who would still consider themselves relatively conservative in many ways, but at the same time wanting someone to kind of criticize the president and what that administration might stand for. Um, And I think she's kind of been the de facto leader of that. All right, Sarah, we will get into all the stuff that we have talked about. Mark and I have addressed um, in the past couple of minutes, hopefully through these questions that we have for you. But I guess my first question for you is just how did you first hear about Beth Moore? So my mom uh, was a fan of Beth Moore and she, um, she enjoyed her Bible studies. And then when I was in, I was living in Green Bay, Wisconsin, when, um, I wrote that cover story for Christianity Today, and my pastor's wife at my church said that if she did a Bible study for women that was not a Beth Moore Bible study, it was super hard to get them to come because everyone was just such a fan of Beth Moore. Um, She just has this, like, personality and force and charisma that really resonates with people, that really touches, especially, like, an older generation of women. So uh, that's when I figured, like, there's something here. She She's the most popular Bible teacher in the country. She's, you know, probably one of the most famous Southern Baptists in the country. And uh, she just has an amazing following. Also, I did a cover story for Christianity Today uh, called 50 Women to Watch. And ahead of doing that story, I pulled um, I, maybe over 100 evangelical leaders and said, who are, who are the women that you're watching? And Beth Moore was by far and away the most named person in that sort of unofficial, you know, non-scientific survey. Um, but she just, she's definitely one of the most visible evangelical women in the country. Why do you think that Beth Moore has resonated so much with evangelical women? I think she does a a good job of weaving back and forth between Bible and her personal narrative and stories and connecting with women on, on really emotional issues. I remember, you know, women just weeping over a story she told about um, helping a woman through breast cancer. And she just has a way of getting at those harder issues or harder experiences. You mentioned, you know, 
the adoption issue that she went through, her hysterectomy, her sex abuse. Like she's willing to talk about her two girls. She's she's willing to kind of go there in a way that I think um, you might not hear from the pulpit. So I think it resonates. I think it it's a lot of women see it as a really helpful supplement in addition to the Sunday morning preaching that they get. They get this sort of extra Bible teaching from Beth Moore. As someone who did her Bible studies growing up, I just think it's interesting too. Sometimes I've I've seen conversations where people start to like dissect like what do women's Bible studies books look like? And at least the Bible study books that I did of hers, they seem to be very like thematic based. Like I never saw a picture of Beth Moore on the cover (laughs) being like, this is Beth Moore's Bible study. Um, But instead it was something that was like really reminding you of the scripture that you were about to like work through. And she always took the Bible studies themselves like extremely seriously. Like I remember just doing them and they felt extremely robust. Um, You were really working through a lot of different parts of the Bible when you were doing them. And I felt like she was someone who was like a friend that was challenging you along the way. They never really felt to me like they were pandering at all in a way that I know that some women have like felt uncomfortable about the ways that other parts of the evangelical world have pandered to them. And I would say the, um, the emotional resonance just doesn't work for women. I remember I interviewed her once at a, uh, what was the name of that big book conference that we used to have that don't have it anymore? Whatever it was. CBD, yeah, exactly. So I'm talking to her, interviewing her, and she starts to tell this story about one of her boys. And, uh, you know, I'm just starting to get kind of emotionally moved by it, but I'm supposed to be the objective journalist in this room (laughs) who's not supposed to be moved in this way. Uh, but just the way she just tells the story one-on-one is even emotionally engaging. So she's a very, very uh, charismatic figure, for sure. So we we talked about this a little bit, but I, I'm wondering, Sarah, Mark had mentioned that she like talks about the fact that um, sexual abuse had been in her past, but she hadn't really, there's never been a point where she's really gotten into it more deeply. But to what extent has that changed in recent years? So... She was in a, on a panel last night at the Southern Baptist Convention on sex abuse. And she said last night that she talked about this from the very beginning of her ministry. She included it in her first book. And so she always sort of mentions it kind of in passing. She never goes into detail. You know, she's very vague about it. Uh, she says that's pr- for the protection of family members. But she somehow like weaves it back into her bigger message about Jesus and, and about the Bible. And um, but I think it's for a lot of women, it's, it, it was, it has been such a connecting point. Like, wow, she's been through so much and, and yet she's here teaching, you know, fiercely or uh, vibrantly or charismatically about the Bible. And I think it's given her a lot of sort of credibility and in a sense, like I said, she's been through this really difficult trauma and, and it yet is still able to, to address and help, help other people. I think she has never been seen as sort of an, a sex abuse advocate in in the way that like in the Catholic sex abuse scandal we have seen a lot of survivors come out and become advocates and and has, have really worked on kind of a legal front and have pushed Catholic leaders to to um, address the issue um, and Beth more more recently has sort of become one of those um, and, and in the past she was seen as I would have seen her as more of, more of this like sweet Bible teacher who d- doesn't really dive into politics very much, right? But that a lot of that changed. And as you alluded to earlier, around 2016, around the 
presidential election, Donald Trump, the Access Hollywood video um, where he bragged about sexual assault. That is when she sort of became this like lightning rod on Twitter. Uh, she became pretty like forcefully vocal about experiencing uh, misogyny and sexism. And since then, she's just emerged as this like voice on on these issues. And so that's that's where that's what kind of got the ball rolling for um, how she has become a more uh, visible presence, more than just like oh, she's a Bible teacher. Do you know if she was on Twitter prior to 2016? Yeah, I think she was, but I think it was sort of part of her bigger social media platform. Like, I know she blogged. When I did that story in 2010, she was doing blogs, but they were not, I don't remember many of them really, you know, taking off in any significant way. Yeah, so 2016, she's said multiple times, was kind of the turning point for her. Has she gone into any more depth about what exactly that was that, snapped or changed? A little bit. She's talked uh, that you mentioned the Atlantic profile uh, a couple of months ago, and she she talked about how it was just kind of a turning point. She wrote a blog post last year about the misogyny that she's experienced from evangelical leaders. And I think the Me Too movement, she, I don't know if she really like was involved in that movement or would have attached herself to that. But I think in, in the sort of larger conversation about women and abuse and harassment, She's really, like, taken that and and directed it at the church. So we got into the fact that um, she provoked another controversy kind of recently on the subject of women preaching. But I'm wondering if we can go back before this kind of stuff that's happened on Twitter. Have there been tensions in the SBC with Beth Moore before these more recent tweets and statements? Kind of in the sense that, like, there are always frenzied people who are, um, you know, concerned or wondering. Um, she's spoken at a popular conference called the Passion Conference. And so, you know, there have been questions, can a woman teach a man? You know, should she be in these sort of preaching roles? She's, and she's preached in the past, but it hasn't been the lightning rod that it became fairly recently. And I think what happened was somebody tweeted at her and this woman said, I'm preaching at my church. And Beth Moore re- responded to her and said, I'm doing Mother's Day services too. She didn't use the word preaching, but everyone sort of got up in arms over like, should a woman preach during the Sunday sermon slot where men in the Southern Baptist Convention traditionally preach? Um, so you won't see women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention, but there are questions over should a w- woman sort of teach a Sunday school class? Should they be worship ministers? What does it mean for women to have authority over men? And she sort of like reignited this longstanding debate in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, early on, she was criticized for because men were showing up at her women's conferences because they wanted to listen to her. And mm-hmm. uh, she just said, uh, you know, I'm not going to turn anyone away who shows up. And if they want to come and listen... That's their business. <laughs> so that's how she handled yeah. it early on. But now she's obviously taking, especially with the Passion Conference, she's taking a more, a more specific role in teaching and preaching men. So, Sarah, I'm curious, when do you first remember seeing something that Beth Moore did or said that surprised you? Um, I think it was the um, After Access Hollywood Donald Trump video. And I don't remember the specific tweet, but I just was like, oh, my goodness especially in light of at that 
moment, there was there were a lot of evangelical leaders who were backing Trump, saying, you know, this is this is locker room talk. His evangelical advisors were were sort of willing to overlook it or suggested kind of it wasn't a big deal. But Beth Moore was one of the most vocal, I think, to to sort of and quick to say this is not okay. And and she carries a lot of weight. And I think she's risking something. So she's one of I think the most popular author for Lifeway, which is Southern Baptist Convention's publishing arm. She's their most popular author and she's losing in book sales. Um they won't say how much but uh, it gives you an indication of the cost that she's had to incur um, in in sort of the speaking out that she's done. I know the Southern Baptist just came out with their report on uh, sexual abuse and pastors. When did that? When did they start looking into that? And what what effect uh, has Beth Moore speaking out played in that in making that report move along and well get started, move along, and finish? My understanding is that the Southern Baptist leaders began looking into it last year, um, maybe a bit before this time, last spring. Um, There were a couple of things that kind of flared up, uh, including some allegations of rape at a Southern Baptist seminary, and and that got kind of flared up the issue, and they brought it to the annual meeting in Dallas last year. And there, Beth Moore was on a panel um, addressing abuse there. So I think she was one of many voices sort of you know, uh, being outspoken on it and being uh, willing. But I don't think she was like the driving uh, factor per se. Um, J.D. Greer, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, decided to make it a priority last year. And he had started getting the ball rolling and had put together an advisory board or committee or something like that. And they had been working all year long on this uh, report. And then Earlier this year, in February, the Houston Chronicle dropped a a pretty big story detailing just how widespread the sexual abuse scandal had gotten. Um, Hundreds, I think 700 victims. They listed, you know, 200 leader uh, Southern Baptists, you know, whether staff, volunteers, that kind of thing, uh, perpetrators. So those were kind of moments along the way that have really propelled the Southern Baptist Convention to wrestle with this issue. But Beth Moore has become one of the, she, she, you know, she's just such a big name. She is, she brings credibility to the issue. So it hasn't been just her, but, um, but she's become like kind of a lightning rod within the issue. Has she commented on the new report? I don't think like the specific report, I think she just, just in general has been encouraged to see that, like, uh, last night she said she was glad to see it on, like, something on paper. So I think she's like, this is, you know, we're finally talking about this. We're finally, like, acknowledging it. We are, like, formalizing it. Um, So she did seem encouraged just generally. Yeah, I just thought I would also acknowledge the fact that our colleague Kate Shelnut did a piece on, that's called, in the print issue at least, Holy Rumblings, and that looks at women who are basically challenging Southern Baptists when it comes to ministry abuse. And Beth Moore is one of the people in there, but um, there's nine other women in here who, some of them who are survivors themselves, um, some of them who are not, but all of them who are advocated and pressed for reform in this particular area. 
I don't know that you've had a chance to read the report yet, Sarah, but it, uh, our summary of it strikes me that they're pretty, uh, Southern Baptists have been, are pretty hard on themselves in this report. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, can you be hard on yourself when it comes to sex abuse? Like, I don't know. Like, it, I think they lay out the facts. I think there's something to be said about expectations from either the, the victims or survivors or leaders. Like, what are your expectations in terms of, you know, do you think this is an issue? A lot of the victims are like not surprised at all. And they are expecting a lot of action this week. And if if you're a leader, it may be surprising or maybe overwhelming to see it documented in such detail. Uh, so I think the expectations really kind of fuel the response. Yeah, our title is Report, How Southern Baptists Failed to Care About Abuse. Mm-hmm. SBC releases abuse study condemning past practices and recommending new protections, which strikes me now, if, if, if that in fact is a fair summary of what the report does, uh, sounds, me like, sounds like a better immediate response than many denominational leaders who soft-pedal it. Their first report is to soft-pedal it, and it's only the second or third report that they get more honest and frank about it. But To give you some context, there's a woman named Krista Brown who's been advocating for years for uh, a database to be created for registered sex abuse um, offenders, and that has failed in motions in the past, and they're not considering that this this time around, maybe they will consider it in the future. But if that gives you an indication, like women have come forward before, and I don't know that they ignored it per se, but like this is the first time that they're really collectively as a like leader after leader after leader in these panels are saying like, we have to do something about sex abuse. This is an issue. This is an issue. This is an issue. But for someone like Krista, she would say, well, I've been telling you that for years. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was interesting. Was it last year that uh, Al Mohler kind of came around and just was thoroughly, thoroughly disgusted with what he was hearing and learning about as well? So I think there has been a sea change in the Southern Baptist denomination on this. That, that would be fair to say? So the, um, <laughs> it depends on how they vote um, on these sort of like action items, right? They're considering see, yeah. amending their constitution. They're considering some pre- like depending on how you see it, some, some, uh, some changes. And so is that just a start of a longer process that they will entail or are they going to, you know, do something to, to make a nod to it? It, it, Again, it's sort of about your expectations and, you know, I've heard a really mixed bag from the survivors. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. 
Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Well, okay. I think one of the big things that's up for grabs, um, or, yeah, that, that a lot of people are paying attention to is the part about disfellowshipping churches, over these things. And yeah. for people who aren't super familiar with the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the things that makes this denomination unique is that congregations have a lot of autonomy in ways that other de- is not true in other denominations. And so this is both kind of with regards to how these cases were often handled, where churches were not necessarily... I don't know, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know that there was some sort of long, like larger denominational protocol, but in one of the sections of this report, when they say we recognize failures have occurred in many areas, um, one of the ways that they mentioned specifically is using church autonomy improperly to avoid taking appropriate action. And yeah, so, so I've heard that over and over again. Yeah, yeah. I, I just was going to say because that to me kind of is is one of the things that is really kind of persnickety in the sense that it gets at the heart of what it means to be Southern Baptist for many people, right? And what it means to relate to the head of the denomination. I don't know. When I've been reading through the different reports this year, when when people are talking about the database, I remember reading complaints from some of the leaders that, like, we specifically don't give the denomination that much power to do all these things. And basically, like, why do we want we don't want that much oversight? Like, that's literally the point of being Southern Baptist in many ways. The point that I heard from a from a uh, survivor was like, you know, Southern Baptists are able to cooperate on all sorts of things like missions and budgets and buying insurance and, you know, why can't they cooperate on something like this? But yes, I think you struck at the heart of the question for them when it comes to church polity. And that's true of every denomination. It has its own unique polity. So, for example, in the Catholic Church, to take the other end of church polity, <laughs> they, are, they are working very hard to uh, eradicate especially child abuse in their, in their world. Uh, but they do uh, have to do that in in the context of their actual structure, in a way that will actually preserve the great things about the structure, while also protecting victims. And that would be true everything from the Roman Catholic to Presbyterian to Methodist to Baptist. And yeah, the Catholic bishops are actually meeting in Baltimore this week to discuss um, sex abuse policy. Pope Francis has recently put into place official Vatican, Vatican policy on this. Uh, so it's, I mean, these are the two largest, the Catholic and Southern Baptist conventions are the largest religious denominations in the country. So, uh, and they're both tackling, uh, they're both trying to tackle this issue head on this week. And they're both have complete, almost diametrically opposed ideas of what it means to be a church. It'll be interesting to see how they each, over, they're not going to solve it, neither of them are going to solve it this week, but It'll be interesting as it evolves how they end up addressing this uh, 
because I think they're both convinced it needs to be addressed, but they are trying to juggle a lot of balls in the air at the same time. So we'll see. I want to go back to Beth Moore for a second. One of the issues that we've looked at at CT in the past couple of years is the issue of women and institutional support or lack of institutional support and how that shapes their ministry. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Living Proof Ministries is basically Beth Moore. And in many extent, she's been able to gain the platform that she is because she created her own place to do so, um, which is something that we've kind of seen consistently, if I'm correct. And, and I only say that in that, like, I'm not aware of any other women who are currently leading any other Southern Baptist institutions, including seminaries, but also stuff like their big publishing house, Lifeway, um, or even something like Lifeway Research, um, which is one of their big um, data collecting organizations. Is that fair to say that she also occupies this unique space because women have almost been shut out of every way they could come up through some of the more traditional uh, institutions? It is interesting. I've made a little bit of the unofficial contrast to the Catholic Church because they have a similar sort of complementarian view. You don't have women priests, but they have women leaders at their Catholic Health Association. They have women, you know, nuns Mm -hmm. running hospitals and Mm -hmm. um, educational institutions. Whereas I think for complementarian evangelical women, it has been difficult to go through official structures to become leaders, but they've been very entrepreneurial, like Beth Moore, in creating their own, um, their own worlds almost. Given that she, because I guess she's the leader of her own ministry in many ways, and, and given that she doesn't necessarily have an agenda to stick through, I just think again of like, if you're the head of a seminary, for instance, there's things that you will say as being the head of the seminary. How do you think that she will still continue to play a role in terms of determining the conversation and priorities of her fellow Southern Baptists? I think that's a good question. She seems really strategic um, in thinking about when to speak on what. Um, and, you know, I, I think she, even though a lot of the attention was paid to her this past week, she ended up deflecting a lot of attention onto others. I think that's part of her goal is, okay, focus on me for a hot second, and then I'm going to tell you about um, another person. You know, in last night's panel, she was sitting next to another abuse survivor who was abused in, in Birmingham, you know, who doesn't, you know, have a, a name that we would all know, uh, but Beth Moore just kept, you know, nodding to her and kept, you know, um, sort of almost passing her mantle to this other woman. And so um, I think we might continue to see that. She's also fairly recently... T- addressed racial reconciliation issues. And, and I've been curious if that will come up in the future. I don't know when or how, um, I don't know if she would, you know, address immigration since she lives in Texas. So I don't know. Like, I think that's, that's something I'll be watching in the coming years. So beyond Southern Baptists, who does Beth Moore represent and what communities is she important to? I think a lot of evangelical women look to her for, for shaping their theological views, for understanding how to study the Bible, but then also um, just in general, like she's funny and she's charismatic and, and quick. She's just, I mean, last night after this panel, this is a panel of like five, four or five individuals and the women just like these young 20 something women just 
flock to her and just waited in line for like an hour to hug her and to take photos of her. She doesn't have just Southern Baptist fans. It goes stretches far beyond that. And if she were to somehow shift in her views, like it would be a big deal. So I think, you know, she has a big voice here, but she's not just dependent on the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, it definitely seems like if her books are like the most popular selling books for Lifeway, then obviously they've kind of just transcended just this one particular denomination. And I don't even know how much I was aware of Southern Baptist even when I was doing her Bible study books. Yeah. She also publishes with Tyndale, you know, which is a more, I believe, non-denominational publisher. And if that gives you a sense of, she's sort of non-denominational too in her outreach, I guess. You talked about her being really personable. I just, for people who aren't viewing her on Twitter, I think it's also pretty rare for someone that has nearly 1 million followers to be as personable with the people that follow her and as engaged in having conversations with people as she is. Yeah, I think in some ways, you know, it's easy to build a personality and a following on social media, but that, it's not just she you know, started a Twitter account and accumulated these followers. She's had a huge following for for decades now. Like this isn't an overnight thing. Um, and so, you know, when she speaks, she speaks with this to women who have been following her for decades. And I think that's, that's partly, you know, why this is all interesting is that she fairly later-ish in her career is having this sort of moment of reckoning. Yeah, I think right now you're just hinting at this. I guess if we're going to sign off you know, like you're talking to a traditional reporter, what's next? What are the storylines that we should follow, I guess, um, when it comes to Beth Moore? Yeah, like I said, I think I'll be watching to see if she speaks more on uh, racial reconciliation and um, next year with the 2020 election. You know, is she going to play some kind of role in swaying evangelical opinion? I don't know. Like, does she have that kind of sway? I don't know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But I'll be watching. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for giving us this overview of Beth Moore and also what's going on right now with the Southern Baptist Convention and sex abuse. We really appreciate it. People who want to give us feedback can do so. We're at podcast at ChristianityToday.com. You can also find us on Twitter at CT Podcast. I just wanted to take the time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who supports our ministry. And Mark is currently doing this thing that comes out on Wednesdays, which is also the day that the podcast comes out, called Elusive Presence. He's not referring to him. Who are you referring to? I don't actually know who you're referring to. The Elusive Presence is God, the Holy Spirit. Is God eluding us? (laughs) No, No, it, it means he is difficult to grab a hold of. Okay. He's always just beyond our grasp. Okay. Yeah. So the title of of the series, yeah, the title of the series comes from a book of that title. Okay. Which was written a few decades ago now. And I I read it at the time, and I will have to admit, I don't remember a lot from the book except the title captivated me and has so ever since. But in the last, uh, I don't know, five to 10 years, it, 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 it occurred to me that I was able to lead a very successful life as a Christian, as a Christian editor, as a professional Christian. A professional Christian. Uh, and th- that I probably could do it pretty well without praying <laughs> mm-hmm. and without having a deep and passionate love for God. But I noticed when I read the Psalms and various portions of Scripture and some of the saints I most admired, they were deeply passionate about uh, finding God, knowing God, loving God, 
uh, whose presence, as, as the title of the series suggests, is always just a little bit beyond our grasp, so that we, just, we, we keep yearning for it, if we're on that journey. So it occurred to me that uh, this was something I needed to attend to, but uh, it wasn't just uh, me. I noticed that as I talked with friends and observed especially our movement, which is supposed to be a movement about loving Jesus and following Jesus. In my opinion, we've forgotten how to do that, how to pursue Christ for who he is in and of himself. So this is a, a series that's exploring that, both in terms of the signs that I think it's a problem, but also as the series moves on, some ways to move forward. So one way to look at Mark's series is that this could be a summer discipleship series, I think. That's true, because uh, I will I will have published most of the pieces in the initial phase by the end of summer. It will come out as a book uh, uh, by Tyndale in the spring, in which I'll be adding more stuff that won't be in the series. But I'll probably continue this series, because every week, as I read and observe and think about and pray, I think, ah, that, w- that would be good in the book. But in the meantime, I'll just put it in the mm-hmm. in the series. Yeah. The cool thing about Mark is that he's not worried about offending you, which is something that sometimes the people that we would hope would we would want to disciple us actually do care about offending us. But thankfully, Mark is not that person, <laughs> well, which I think is, is a... not my intention to. Okay, offend. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to say you're trying. I'm just no, saying no. like you're okay, kind of like poking us, and I've like felt poked when I've read through the series. Okay, good. Well. Uh, Which I think is the point. And I try, and I try at various points to note how that poking also works back at me as sure. well. Yeah, sure. This but... is an us problem. This is not a. Pro- I'm the prophet on standing on top of the mountain telling other people what they should do. I'm standing in the valley with the rest of us saying, "Hey, have we thought about this?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. No. I'm not. I no. This is not subscription to self righteousness. If you support this, anyway, I think you should check it out. We publish Mark series on Wednesdays. So again. It's the same day the podcast comes out. Just head over to our homepage and you'll be able to find that as well as all the previous ones that you may not have seen yet. All right. So now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments. And it's a great time for everyone to get to share something that has brought them joy recently. Sarah? So... Ahead of my trip, I told my three-year-old that I was going to Alabama, and she um, asked me where that was, and I explained, and she um, and I said, I'm going to get you a present while I'm there, and she asked me, can you get me a toothbrush? And <laughs> I uh, I told her I would ask people in Alabama if they have toothbrushes. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> what does that tell us about your daughter, that she wanted a toothbrush? I mean, the littlest things excite her, which is so precious. I love it. What else has she been really excited about lately? Birthdays and summer. She, every day she asks me, is it summer? And I keep telling her yes, even though I'm not sure the equinox has <laughs> passed or whatever. <laughs> That's awesome, though. I love that. Where can people find you, Sarah, outside of this podcast? Oh, I'm at on Twitter. If we're uh, speaking of Twitter, at Espoliam, S-P-U-L-L-I-A-M. Mm-hmm. I'm at the Washington Post. dot com. Uh, if you just search religion or search my search me on Google, you'll find me. And you guys also have a newsletter too, right? That comes out. We do. Yeah, it's called Acts of Faith. It comes out on Tuesday and Thursdays. Are you ready, Mark? I'm ready. Just spent the weekend in New Orleans with. Uh grandchild and daughter and son-in-law and on the way on the way back this morning in fact 
we were driving down uh, a major thoroughfare in the Chicagoland area, western suburbs, called Roosevelt Avenue. Some people say it's Roosevelt, but I remember on my very first trip here when I was running, interfering interviewing for the job of uh, associate editor at leadership, how depressing that street was. It was just ugly. And yet that's the street that I ended up driving down, trying to get to uh, a place in Wheaton and Carroll Stream where I was spending the night. And this time when I was driving down, I noticed how pleasant it was. That is to say the city fathers and mothers had, over the last 15, 20 years, had planted trees and made the sidewalks wider and added nice lamp posts. And I, for the moment, just thought, I'm, gr I'm grateful that there are people in the world that want to try to beautify places where we live. So that was... That Beautification was efforts, a little... Well, actually, I would not say a little bit goes a long way. A lot goes a long way. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It really makes a difference. Yeah. And, and you just even, like, feel different when you're on the road somehow. That road is really interesting because it also runs all the way back to Chicago yep. as well. Right in the town. Exactly. In fact, it takes you all the way to the planetarium if you so yeah. desire. Now, it isn't so pleasant all the way along, but at least in our end, our end of it, it's pretty nice now. Yeah. All right. So where can people find you opining outside of this? Oh, yeah. I published something called The Galley Report. It can be found at Christianity Today slash The Galley Report. Uh, that's G-A-L-L-I. I comment on various things that are happening, often commenting on what other people are commenting on. And Pretty much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the way the world works nowadays. You don't actually have to produce anything. You just comment on what other people comment on. But any, at any rate, <laughs> for some reason, some 20,000 subscribers think it's pretty good, and I appreciate their support. And you might find it that way as well, so check it out. Okay, speaking of beauty in the world. My precious moment is that I went to Savannah this past weekend. Have you been there, Mark? I haven't been to Savannah, I don't believe. So Savannah apparently has a complicated history. From what I understand, much of the South was decimated during Sherman's March to the Sea, which was basically this like really brutal campaign where a lot of the South was just kind of like destroyed the infrastructure leveled. was just leveled yeah, yeah. during the end of the civil war done by general sherman and so the friends that i saw when i was in savannah actually told me that part of the reason savannah seems to be like so uniquely beautiful is that apparently <laughs> savannah was saved because sherman fell in love with a woman who lived there oh. <laughs> he fell in love with the enemy love solves a lot of problems that's for sure and she convinced him apparently to not burn down her city it is super interesting there. The congregation, I don't think the actual church building, but the congregation that um, John Wesley was apparently a part of where love actually played a role in this. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong. You're the church historian. But this is what I learned. John Wesley was at this church. He ran into his old beloved that he had hoped to marry and found out that she'd gotten married to someone else. And so he denied her communion. <laughs> and then he got kicked out of the church, obviously. <laughs> and he went sulking back to England and then ultimately started Methodism after that. So I was like, wow, this is great. The broken heart that spawned a denomination. Okay, we haven't had a chance to fact check that. It's an awfully good story, though. It's really good, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that may be true. But if but in any event, the church that he was at before he ended up starting what is now known as Methodism, 
is also in Savannah. And Savannah is full of all these extremely beautiful squares that are just throughout the city that have nice trees and some have fountains and statues. And it's just an incredibly lush and green place. In fact, it feels very similar to where Mark was in New Orleans in terms of like being kind of a cousin city to that, though it's a little bit smaller. We should clarify, he, he was a founder of a movement that was deridingly called Methodism. And I don't think it became a denomination until after the American Revolution, and then it became a real denomination. That is information you can actually believe. <laughs> Someone can tell us if that story about John Wesley's broken heart is true, though. Yeah. In the meantime, it let it let it entertain you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. You can support this podcast by doing lots of things. You can subscribe to the show via any of the places that you get podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Spotify and so forth. So just go ahead and look there. You can also go on the Apple Podcast and you can rate and review the show, which is a huge way that helps us. Actually, a lot of the information that's from Apple Podcasts goes into then feed these other podcast outlets. So that's kind of the way that it ends up helping us there. You can also become a subscriber of Christianity Today magazine, and that's available at orderct.com slash podcast, orderct.com slash podcast. And yes, this podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred. The music is by Sweeps. We will see you all next week. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.